Hello and welcome everyone. Good afternoon, wherever you are coming in from. This is your host, Molly Leach, and you're tuned in to Restorative Justice on the Rise. And I'm, you probably can hear it in my voice, I'm pretty excited to share with you today uh, both a presentation and an interactive conversation with Dr. Martha A. Brown, who is the author of uh, Creating Restorative Schools, Setting Schools Up to Succeed. And I'm going to be introducing her um, in just a moment. Once again, if you're just coming into the room, welcome. Um, don't forget that there is a slideshow today that will be presented, and you hopefully all of you found it fairly seamless to come into this uh, conference room by phone and or web, and then to access the slideshow. It's a pretty straightforward system, we think, and we hope it is for you. Also, just a reminder that this will be a recorded session so that um, those of you who are not able to make it today or know of somebody who isn't here with us uh, will be able to access this at a later time at the same link as the viewing um, link is right now. So again, welcome. I'm Molly Leach. I'm the producer, founder, and host of Restorative Justice on the Rise. You can find all of our interviews and dialogues related to restorative justice and peace building at restorativejusticeontherise.org. And this show today and dialogue with Dr. Brown was made possible by Living Justice Press, who is the publisher of Creating Restorative Schools. And they have a great selection of restorative justice books, including books from a lot of, um, I think, Martha's colleagues and even teachers in the field. Um, so I really encourage you and am grateful to um, Living Justice Press. I encourage you to go there to livingjusticepress.com and check out their bookstore and support their work. We also want to thank Full Circle Restorative Justice today for being a, a partner on this event. Full Circle Restorative Justice is a program based in Salida, Colorado, serving the District 11 um, counties and is a program serving schools as well as the court system in restorative practices. So welcome everyone and when we get into the point where we go into um, interactive discussion, for those of you that would like to make a, um, make a comment or ask a question, you can do that in two different ways. You can come um, into the text box and simply make a little note there and I will see that and speak to it on your behalf if I may. Secondly, if you would like to speak up on, on the um, interactive section, all you need to do is raise your hand. If you don't see the raise hand button, just press star 2 on your keypad and I'll remind you about that later. So just going into sharing with you a bit about Martha and um, giving you an idea of her incredible work as a consultant, presenter, researcher, teacher, and author. She's an advocate of restorative justice, of course, and she earned her doctorate in curriculum and instruction from Florida Atlantic University after first exploring restorative schools in the UK and then ultimately conducting her dissertation research 
in partnership with the Oakland Unified School District in California. Dr. Brown is the lead instructor for Simon Fraser University's Continuing Studies Restorative Justice Certificate Program, where she facilitates learning for adult students in Canada, United States, Australia, Africa, and other countries worldwide. She has published several peer-reviewed articles, book chapters and book reviews regarding restorative justice, correctional education, and evaluating art education programs. She has also presented nationally at conferences sponsored by the National Association of Community and Restorative Justice, NACRJ, and the International Conference on Conflict Resolution in Education, also known as CRE. Dr. Brown, in 2016, founded RJAE Consulting International to provide planning, evaluation, and other consulting services to schools, school districts, correctional facilities, and organizations focusing on restorative justice or art education. And I just want to say a big thank you to, to you, Martha, for your book. Um, this is quite, uh, quite a compendium of knowledge, um, practical knowledge from the field, and I, I really appreciate the fact that you were working with one of um, our, our, I think, longer-running restorative systems in schools, which is the Oakland Uni um, Unified School District, as you mentioned. So I, I just want to welcome you here today, and thank you so much for your time, Martha. Thank you, Molly. Um, hi, everyone. I'm Martha Brown, and I'm really honored to be here today. I'm speaking to you from my home in Delray Beach, Florida, and I do have birds, so if you hear chirping in the background, you're, um, that's, that's my children. And before I start, I'd really like to um, lift up my gratitude to indigenous peoples and their ancestors for giving us the, the gift of the circle and to all of the um, teachers and um, giants upon who I stand right now. Thank you for, for, uh, for everything to get me to this point. And um, especially I'd like to thank Living Justice Press for agreeing to publish my book and for all the incredible support from uh, Denise Breton and Kay Pranis. So in this talk about humanizing education and reconnecting people, I'm going to share with you some of what I've learned from researching restorative justice in American and Canadian schools. I'll introduce you to other experts who have made great contributions to the field and share with you some findings from an evaluation I did with an RJ trainer as we tried to capture a shift in how educators think about behavior and punishment. Since the late 1990s, schools in various parts of the world have been implementing restorative practices with much success. Restorative practices range from informal conversations to more structured conferences, circles, and mediations. Many times schools implement restorative practices in order to improve student behavior by finding ways for students to be engaged in problem-solving and healing processes that then greatly reduce the likelihood behavior will continue. Some of the outcomes that have been used to measure success in, in, um, include decreased bullying, conflict, and violence, decreased suspensions, detentions, discipline referrals, increased student achievement and attendance, as well as parental engagement. But Dr. Brenda Morrison, who is the director of the Center for Restorative Justice at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, British Columbia, 
encourages us to look beyond the more simple indicators and measurements regarding individual behaviors and instead create relational ecologies in schools that support positive, healthy relationships across all environments. Her colleague at Dalhousie Law School, Jennifer Llewellyn, pushes us to research and evaluate how relationships change and move beyond the typical ways that we evaluate RJ. Both of these scholars have profoundly influenced the way I think about implementing and evaluating RJE. So let's break down this term, relational ecology. Uh, if you've read my book, it may be the first time that you've heard of it. So ecology is defined as a science that deals with relationships between groups of living things and their environments. In my book, I investigated the relational ecology in, of urban middle schools practicing school-wide restorative justice to learn how groups, and that would be the students, the teachers, et cetera, of living things, people, related to each other within the context of their school environment. Brenda Morrison and Dorothy Vandering define relational ecology as a framework for nurturing human capacity that focuses on reconnecting people to each other, highlighting inherent relational qualities and emphasizing social engagement, including addressing violence and aggression in schools. Although many factors contribute to a school's relational ecology, I focus primarily on relational interactions among people in the school to determine if administrators, teachers, and other school staff related to students and, and each other in ways that emphasize caring, connections, and social engagement. Dr. Kathy Evans and Dr. Dorothy Vandering co-authored the Little Book of Restorative Justice in Education, or what we call RJE. And this book, has really helped us change the way we think about RJE. They grounded it in critical relational theory as well as other educational theories and provide us with a holistic vision for restorative justice in schools that goes far beyond discipline and achievement. Kathy once taught middle school and Dorothy was once an elementary school teacher. Both are now teacher educators at well-respected universities. And I credit them with taking RJE out of the field of criminology and firmly grounding it in the field of education. Dorothy and Kathy's work bases restorative justice and education on three pillars, all of equal importance. First, RJE is about building and maintaining healthy relationships between all members of the school community. It's about creating that positive relational ecology. Next, RJE focuses on creating just and equitable learning environments. Here, we not only consider the curriculum that teachers use, but also how they relate with their students and build a community of care in their classrooms. Finally, RJE is about repairing harm and transforming conflict. Restorative practices bring people together to understand the causes of behaviors that result in harm so that behavioral incidents and harms are used as learning experiences that work to prevent future harm. One of the questions I sought to answer in my book, Creating Restorative Schools, is what does the relational ecology of a school practicing restorative justice look like? In the schools where I conducted my relationship, I found that strong relational ecologies were built on trust between administrators, teachers, students, and staff. People intentionally listen to each other, and they create time and space for everyone to be heard. The focus on the school is on relationships so that no students are excluded, isolated, or marginalized. 
Power is shared and students are empowered to solve their own problems and help make their schools better places to be. Finally, there's a strong focus on social justice and equity, which is very important given that schools in North America and elsewhere have been guilty of disproportionately disciplining students of color, students with disabilities, LGBTQ plus students, and other marginalized groups. There are many factors that influence the school's relational ecology. It's very complex, dynamic, and multifaceted. And what I learned from my research was that there's a strong relationship between a school's relational ecology and its ability to change from being punitive to restorative. The stronger the relational ecology, the more people in schools are able to handle the stresses and the newness associated with implementing school-wide restorative practices. That's why it's so important that we really reflect on and assess the relationship, relational ecology of a school. We just can't separate it out from a school's, school community's ability to change. And that's also why we need to evaluate those relational changes. The idea behind school-wide implementation of RJE is that restorative practices are used universally. They're woven into school life and they work to build and reaffirm relationships. Tier one is all about building a strong, healthy relational ecology. Schools that invest time and energy into building a strong foundation at tier one find that less students need behavioral intervention. When they do, restorative processes are in place at tier two where they help students and staff solve problems and repair harm at the first sign that something is going wrong. Tier three includes more intensive processes that are used to repair harm and transform conflict. But it's really important to note here that RJE is not the be-all, end-all intervention for troubled students, especially those who have experienced trauma and adverse childhood experiences. Those students may not only need repeated restorative interventions, but other services as well. So while whole school implementation of RJE can do a lot to support students, high-need students may need the help of social workers, counselors, community-based mentors, nutritional support, access to health care, and other support services for the family. Students aren't the only ones, though, who need a structure of support. So does the RJE initiative itself. It's very important that a structure of support be built at all levels so that the process of becoming a restorative school has the resources, policies, funding, training, and other support needed. We need people at all levels, state legislatures, state departments of education, local school boards, community organizations, all working together to create policies of support for district-wide implementation of RJE. The National Association of Community and Restorative Justice in the United States is developing implementation guidelines to help people in schools adopt and implement RJE. I am proud to have served on the committee that created these guidelines along with Lee Rush, Shauna Perry Finch, and Liz Manville. When the guidelines are officially adopted by the NACRJ board, they will be available to you to download from their website. But here are the 10 elements of a restorative school that we came up with that we feel creates the vision for restorative schools to strive for. First of all, relationships matter most. A restorative school prioritizes, nurtures, and maintains healthy relationships between all members of the school community. Everyone is empowered. All staff and students are empowered to make choices based on common values. And that power is shared. 
RJE promotes a distributive and democratic power-sharing model and inclusive processes throughout the school and in the classrooms so that all voices can be heard. Administrators at all levels, meaning the board and central office, building and department level, bargaining units, realize that doing things with others instead of doing things to them or for them will result in more positive outcomes. Behavior is communication. All forms of behavior is, are, are forms of communication, and challenging behaviors demonstrate a breakdown of relationships and unmet needs. Healing comes through reparation and support. RJE helps school community members build resilience as they navigate the school experience and help them build the social skills needed for self-regulation and healthy communication. Restorative schools believe in their students, and the adults hold an optimistic of their students as inherently good people. Restorative schools are safe places. A restorative school culture anticipates, monitors, intervenes, and addresses conflict, violence, mistreatment, bullying, and harassment of any kind. The education is holistic. Restorative and trauma-informed practices acknowledge that emotional, physical, psychological, and social skills and needs are both primary and fundamental to success and well-being. Restorative schools integrate mindfulness, social-emotional learning, the visual and performing arts, and wellness practices. Curriculum is inclusive and multicultural. The school's curriculum and instructional materials reflect the diversity of the students in that school. Restorative schools acknowledge multiple ways of knowing and multiple intelligences. Finally, the instruction itself is relational and restorative. Teachers make learning more fun and meaningful by employing relational-based strategies, including collaborative learning, project-based learning, service learning, and experiential learning. Students are given daily opportunities to co-construct knowledge and participate in a variety of learning processes. So you can see from the 10 elements that RJE has a vision for schools that may be radically different than how we have thought about schools in the past, and that's the point. It's a big paradigm shift. Earlier this year, I helped an RJ trainer evaluate the effectiveness of his training. He wanted to see if indeed people changed the way they thought about punishment, trauma, and behavior. So the next few slides, I'll share with you some of what we learned about how easy or difficult it is for educators to make that paradigm shift. I developed a survey that the trainer administered before and at the end of the sessions, and I'll give you just a second to look more closely at this slide and see a little bit of what that survey entailed. I analyzed the pre- and post-test survey results to determine if attitudes and beliefs had changed and if those changes were significant. The trainer made a lot of progress helping students understand that punishment is really ineffective at changing behaviors. This is a good thing. He also helped educators reject deterrence theory, that knowing what punishments exist helps students manage their behavior. This is also a good thing. The trainer also helped teachers better understand how trauma impacts student behavior and how students can sometimes trigger trauma responses in their teachers. It's very important that more educators learn about trauma, as restorative practices are also trauma-informed practices that can help reduce the risk of re-traumatizing students, which punishment most certainly does. 
On this next survey question, we got both good news and bad news. The good news was that educators started the training already thinking that behavior was a form of communication and then believed that even more strongly by the end of the training. On the other hand, at the end of the training, most educators still thought that students can change their behavior by putting their minds to it, that it's simply a matter of will. So while there was some positive movement regarding how they thought about that, the change was not significant. And given the very low pre and post averages on this particular item, we can infer that a whole lot more needs to be done to help educators understand what causes challenging behaviors and what students can and cannot do themselves and what kind of supports they need so that they can be better at self-regulation. This finding was kind of surprising to us because while they seem to understand the effects of trauma on behavior, they somehow didn't make the connection that some behaviors can't be prevented using cognitive processes and reasoning. What we learned in my own research and in the evaluation of my colleagues' training is that it takes a long time for people to make the shift from punitive to restorative. After all, we all hold some deeply ingrained beliefs about punishment, and restorative justice is new to many of us. So how do we begin to make this shift that we can humanize education and use restorative justice to help people in schools connect with themselves and each other. First, start where you are. Look at your school's relational ecology. How do people relate to each other on a daily basis? What's working well in your school? Build on your strengths. Learn everything you can about RJE, and there is a lot to learn, and find good trainers and consultants to work with. You need school leaders who can inspire staff and hold the vision, and you'll need a group of people who are highly motivated to do the work and lead the initiative. Work together in your school to create a rational plan. Identify your needs, set up a timeline, identify your resources, and work your plan. It's very important that the adults in schools learn to work together restoratively. So as teachers and administrators, spend time together in circle and use restorative practices to build relationships, transform conflict, and solve problems. This way, you can model restorative practices for your students who are going to pick up on this very quickly. Pay close attention to how well you're implementing RJE. Decide how you will define success and what outcomes you want to achieve. But most importantly, include your students from the very beginning. Students are powerful change agents, so sit with them in circle listen to what they have to say, and let them lead. Remember, students don't like being punished, and they are going to embrace RJE probably more readily than many adults. Finally, if you would like more resources on RJE, as Molly mentioned at the beginning, including my book, please visit livingjusticepress.org. And we recommend that if you live outside the U.S. that you choose eBooks uh, wherever possible in order to avoid those high costs of international shipping. If you'd like to expand your knowledge of restorative justice and dive deep into theory and research and practice, consider taking continuing education courses at Simon Fraser University. What you're looking at on the screen is a, is a screenshot of one of their web pages. You can see that on, if you can see that well, that on July 5th, there is a session where you can call in and ask questions. Um, if you look at the course descriptions, you have Introduction to Restorative Justice, Restorative Processes, Applications, Community Development, and the course at the bottom is Restorative Justice in Educational Centers and Settings. 
I've just revised that course, and uh, the new course will launch this September. So even if you don't want to enroll in the entire certificate program, you are able to take individual courses as long as there's room in the class. So if you're interested, please contact SFU Continuing Studies Department. Thank you for this opportunity to speak with you. Please don't hesitate to contact me. My email address is up on the screen, martha at rjconsulting.com. And if you have any questions, I'm looking forward to answering them. Thank you, Molly. Well, thank you so much, Martha. I really appreciate it. And at this point, um, we'd love to go into a little dialogue with you, go into some interactive discussion. Again, for those of you here with us today, live, you can either ask a question using the Q&A chat, or you can also signal to us that you'd like to speak um, on this call. So there's a couple options to get involved after Martha and I have a bit of a discussion. And I'd like to start the discussion, really, Martha, if I might, with what really inspired me when I opened up your book. Um, right off the bat, you share a really powerful story about what turned really your, your professional career and maybe even your life around. Um, and I'm wondering if you could share the story of Julio and how that changed your life and professional experiences that led you into RJE or restorative justice education? Sure, Molly. Um, we have to go back in time to, I think, the year 2005. I was a brand spanking new teacher at a um, local urban high school here in Florida. And um, I, I was very wet behind the ears at the time and was experiencing quite a few challenges on the job. So during this one particular week, somebody had been pulling the fire alarms all week long. So two or three times a day, we were being evacuated from the school, our classes were interrupted, and the fire department had to come. And every time they came that it was a false alarm, the fire department would bill the school. So not only was this disrupting everybody's classes, but it was costing the school a fortune. So the school police decided to put a um, some kind of salve on all of the alarms that would show up under a black light. So whoever pulled it would then have this salve on their hands and could be detected. So one day um, in the middle of my world history class, 10th grade world history class, somebody pulled the alarm. We went outside. We came back in. Very shortly after that, the school police officer came into my classroom and opened my closet door and set up this black light. And I said, what are you doing? And he said, well, we're going to put kids' hands underneath the black light to see who pulled the alarm. So he went right for this young Hispanic boy who was a great student. I really liked this kid. He was a good kid. Went right to him. I named him Julio. Took him in the closet. And the next thing you know, Julio's in handcuffs. He's being led out of my room. And I was absolutely in shock that this was all happening so fast. And one of my students stood up and yelled, Miss, you have to do something. So I went out in the hall and I told the officer, there is no way Julio pulled that alarm because he was in my class the whole time. I saw him. He, he didn't go anywhere. There's no way. And the officer basically just ignored me and continued to take Julio down the hallway in handcuffs. And I'm still trying to figure out why he felt like he needed to put this kid in cuffs. There was no violence or resistance or anything going on. 
And so throughout the rest of the day, I tried to figure out what was happening to Julio because I knew he was innocent. Um, at no time was I asked what happened. I, I really didn't know anything after that. And so, again, this was 2005, and it was 2010 when I learned about restorative justice. And that's when I realized that had I been in that classroom and had I known restorative processes and had the school been restorative, that none of this would have happened. And um, I think what set me about on my professional career is that restorative justice as a journey gave me an opportunity to redeem myself because I don't know what happened to Julio. I don't know if he ended up graduating. I don't know. And I can't help but think that that day perhaps was a turning event in his education the same way it was for me and how I thought about education. Wow. That's quite a story. <laughs> wow. Um, and I just. I still am upset about it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, yeah, and I'm guessing that that may not be unheard of for a lot of us here today. Um, probably no, a lot we of people all know have from watching the news similar. that worse things that worse things have happened. We've had little girls in kindergarten right. being taken out of their classes in handcuffs. So yeah, I just I just was ill-equipped to deal with it, and wish I knew then what I know now. Hmm. Well, Martha, what what do you let's let's dive in a little bit to the practical aspects of of what you go into in your you know in creating restorative schools. And I know I have a lot of curiosity just from your hands-on experience. And one of the things that I'd like to know, um, I bet I'm guessing others would too, is why do you think it's so hard? And also, how how have you seen that play out directly? for some principals and administrators to grasp um, the concepts of how restorative justice education works? I think, I think because they're so busy and overwhelmed with the day-to-day -day operations of schools and all the accountability and all the testing stuff that they're subject to, that they don't have time or, or take the time to really deeply understand that this is a radical departure from the way most schools have been operating for decades. I mean, it, it's, it's not even easy to explain. It's not easy to implement. There's a lot to it. And we all know that a lot of educators operate the way they were taught and shown, and very few, if any, educational leadership programs offer enough courses in how to create positive school climates. And I don't think restorative justice in education is in any leadership programs, and I hope if there is some out there that somebody calls in and, and, and lets us know that. But then you also have the power and authority issues, and RJE requires a democratic governance structure where students, teachers, parents, and interested community members have voice and are involved in decision-making. So here in Florida, struggling right now to have this conversation in a kind of educational climate where administrators are so fearful for their jobs or where the district is so top-down that school principals don't have the power um, to support RJE, even if they wanted to. And I don't think it's this bad everywhere, but many of my colleagues around the country tell me that they struggle with the exact same things. So there are some common challenges that we face, given that school funding is driven by test scores. So test scores are where everyone's heads are at, not on the relationship with the kids as we'd like it to be. <laughs> right. Martha, I'm. I, excuse me for interjecting, but the, you're raising a really huge point there, and I'm wondering, 
do you happen to know in Florida if um, teacher performance is tied into salary and um, student performance? Yes. Or, I mean, uh, yes. teacher jobs and employment stability. That's what I meant to say. Excuse me. It it absolutely is. And they've um, they've taken it down a degree. So they've said over the past couple of years, I think by now it's down to 50%. Um, but I think that's all subjective. And we could go into a long discussion mm-hmm. about the, the validity of, of yeah. tying those two things together. But, yeah, so, so the pressure is just enormous in the schools. There, mm-hmm. there are things we need to change on a policy level about testing and assessment, I think, that need to happen so that we can make room for our JE. And I saw that in Oakland. That's one of the things I noticed in Oakland. I did not see so much uh, teaching to the test. I didn't see these blackout periods. I didn't. Um, see the overemphasis on testing like I see it here. Mm-hmm. And in, in years of dialogues with people in the field, uh, I've I've heard that one of the major concerns of teachers and schools in general is there's no time for anything else. You know, no, there's just <laughs> simply no more time. Um, how do you speak to that, Martha? It's true. It's true. Um, as it is right now, I, I agree with that and see that. And if you look at every single research study and evaluation report written about RJ in schools, that time is one of the number one factors that, that um, is an obstacle to really um, implementing it well. So to me, part of this paradigm shift is not only shifting from punitive to restorative, but really looking at what's going on with teachers. Um, can we reprioritize and reorganize? Can we make internal processes more efficient? Um, can we get rid of, just excuse my language, but can we get rid of all the crap that teachers have to do that have absolutely nothing to do with teaching and learning? And the, and the schools in Oakland where I did my study did a really good job of creating time for teachers and staff to be in circle together. They also arranged the school schedule so that there was time for community building circles with the students. So, you can also look at other things, how are professional learning communities being used, what professional development and meeting time already exists that can be shifted towards RJE. Um, so structuring the school so that there is time is really important. And it, it, I can't stress this enough. You can't just lay RJE on top of everything else that's going on. Something has to change. Some things have to give way. Some things have to come off the plate to make space for this. And teachers need to know that they won't be punished for taking time away from the curriculum in order to have those restorative conversations and circles when they are needed in the moment. Uh, I just want to take a pause here, um, (laughs) and I want to acknowledge that we have people on this um, program today from all over the world. It's really quite amazing as a host to see what RJE can bring, you know, together. And we have people from all over the United States. We have attendees from Canada. And we also have some people calling in from uh, countries like Iran. Um, It's just really quite something to be a host here with you, Martha, um, for this kind of dialogue and sharing, um, given, you know, I really believe that RJ brings people together. Uh, And this is a living example of that right here, right now. I also want to thank you for those of you who have submitted questions. There's so many good questions already in the queue. 
Um, so thank you for those. Please add those as we go, and uh, we will reserve plenty of time to address those with, with Dr. Brown today. Um, and I'd, I'd like to come back, though, to our interview piece here and just ask you um, about a, I would say, probably a fairly touchy subject that needs to be more um, proactively addressed in all of our conversations. And that's how do you see issues like racism or implicit bias as they relate to RJE? Well, there's, there's a ton of research out there about how implicit bias negatively impacts student learning. This is, this is not new information. It's also not new information that most teachers, at least in the United States, are white middle-class women who have not examined whiteness and white privilege. And again, this is, this is not a requirement in a lot of teacher education programs, and it needs to be, because we all live in a racist, sexist, homophobic society, and, and we all have biases, myself included. So anytime an educator harbors negative opinions about certain groups of students, whether those are, are conscious or unconscious, it's going to come out in that classroom in the form of microaggressions or disrespect or even being more apt to throw kids out of the room. It's, it's going to come out if it's not examined and addressed. And so requiring cultural competency training alongside RJE is very, very important, and, and it helps. But it's got to really go deeper into examining whiteness and privilege and implicit bias. Confronting bias is a lifetime journey, and it's, it's not a one-shot deal that can be handled in a three-hour workshop. It has to be brought out in the light and discussed openly and honestly in ways that we can support teachers and administrators on that journey of self-discovery and hopefully transformation. And I just want to emphasize that it is a journey. Um, I'm not there. I work on it every day and um, very aware of the things that I have to work on. So doing that deeply personal internal work in a safe space and examining your own biases is really where to start. And there's a lot of great programs, um, workshops that can help people get through that, that process. And, and Martha, have you seen um, in your work in the field, like in OUSD or otherwise, where the connection circle or tier one practices can be a place to discuss some of these issues or what are you seeing? It definitely is a place where things can be discussed. It's, I don't even think I wrote about this in the book, but when I was in one of the Oakland schools, I was invited to come to an advisory circle in the morning where um, the teacher, who was a white teacher, wanted to talk about the Black Lives Matter movement, which was going really strong in Oakland at the time that I was there. And um, it really did give all of us a chance to talk about how, um, you know, racism, police brutality, things like this affected us in our daily lives. So certainly, mm -hmm. um, you have to be you have to be sensitive and ready for it. And mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but that's the great thing Thank about you. circle dialogue is if if they're if they're done right, it can be that safe space for people to start opening up and having these difficult uh, conversations. Mm hmm And necessary ones, right? Absolutely. Now more than ever. You so, know, you've got ki kids in schools who don't know if their parents are going to be deported tomorrow, and and they're really going through a lot. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, police brutality in this country is horrific and always has been. And so we, we have to start creating these spaces in schools for kids to process and talk about and, and not only that, but to get support because this is real life stuff going on. And of course it's going to affect learning. It's going to affect behavior. It's going to affect everything. Thank you. I'm, we're getting a lot of great questions, like I said, and we will be getting to those here shortly after a few more interview um, interactions between Martha and myself. So um, keep the questions coming in, please. And also do know that you can press star 2 to raise your hand once we get into the Q&A and interactive piece of our time together. So um, Martha, if you would address how a lot of us as practitioners or people who are aware of, of, of the restorative justice movement and the RJE movement, um, one of the pushbacks is that it's weak. How, how do you respond to that? I just want to start by saying I, I live up the road about 15 miles from Parkland, from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, and um, right after the shooting on February 14th, my sister sent me an email that said, gosh, maybe if they'd had restorative justice, those 17 kids would be alive today. And, of course, I was thinking the same thing. And then right after that, there started to be this dialogue nationally that um, the shooting would have never happened had Marjorie Stillman Douglas not had soft discipline practices. And as far as I know, they didn't. Um, I, don't, I don't think they were practicing restorative justice. But the point is, restorative justice is not soft at all. Um, I, I think we all who have been through these processes know there's absolutely nothing harder than sitting down across from somebody that you hurt and hearing them tell you how you've affected them. I, I mean, to me, that's the hardest thing in the world. And most of us would rather not ever have to hear how we've hurt somebody. And on top of that, then we have to meet the needs of the person we hurt or the people we hurt and try to make things right again. It's, it's incredibly difficult and, and easy to throw kids out. So I think the way to respond to this soft discipline accusation that's out there is, is first of all, from that personal level, because those conversations with somebody that we've hurt or somebody that has hurt us are very, very difficult. But then secondly, you know, I'm a, I'm a researcher and evaluator, so this has got to come up. But um, research and evaluation shows that punishment is totally ineffective. It, it's not a deterrent. And taking time to increase bonding and attachment in schools is a deterrent. It, it's clear on that. Um, all of the studies and uh, evaluation reports on RGE show that restorative justice results in fewer discipline problems, less conflict, less violence. So to me, the jury is in on this, pardon the pun, but it's up to the prosecutor, those people who think RGE is soft, to prove to me beyond a reasonable doubt that punishment and exclusion works, because I know I've not seen a single shred of evidence showing that it does. So the burden of proof falls on people mm -hmm. who don't really understand restorative justice enough to know just how darn difficult it is. Mm. And when, you, when I heard you speak to the importance of bonding 
and attachment in schools. And I, I would assume, but I, you know, I'd ask you, uh, you're speaking about multiple relationships in the school climate and community, correct? Not just students and teachers, but between teachers and teachers and administrators and that web as well, correct? Right, and um, bonding theory, attachment theory, um, all shows that if a student even has one adult, just even one, that they, that they can bond with and talk to and trust, it can make all the difference in their schooling. And I, I'm personal testimony to that. I had individual teachers change my life as I was going through my journey. So mm -hmm. I, I believe in that theory a lot. Martha, do you think RJE is effective? And this is a big one, and you've already touched on it with your share about Parkland. Um, do you think RJE is effective at preventing violence and maybe even school shootings? Yes, and I'm not the only one. I know a lot of other um, folks in this field who believe that too. And you know, I've already touched about, on about the research showing that RJE does decrease violence, but this is purely speculation to me. But as I thought about Nicholas Cruz, who was, who was the shooter, I couldn't help but think that if he would have had adults to talk to and process his grief with when his mother died, then he might not have been so angry. He might not have been excluded and felt so isolated. Um, I think had he been going to a restorative school, it is highly likely that he would have had the support that he needed all throughout his schooling, but especially during that time. So to me, if, if America wants safer schools, um, then support RJE and make sure that children don't have access to guns and ban military-grade weapons. Get social workers and mental health counselors in the schools develop community-based mentoring programs so the kids have an adult they can talk to. If they can't find one in their school, they've got somebody in their community. So there's a lot we can do and to make our school safe. We know exactly what the formula is. Um, right now, our political leaders uh, lack the will to make this happen, and I'm hoping that changes very soon um, before more kids and teachers die. I'm just pausing um, because that, I, I, what you're sharing there is a huge, huge piece of what's in like the unspoken in our culture right now, and I just want to thank you for responding to it and um, openly, as hard as it is to consider like how deeply we've gone in into what appears to be. Um, such collective trauma. So thank you, Martha, yeah. for, for bringing it to the surface. You, you know, um, Molly, as, as I think about this, you know, Americans like to have simple answers to complex problems. Mm -hmm. And I think in the restorative yeah, that justice That seems to be the truth, doesn't it, unfortunately? <laughs> you know, we've, I think funny, we've been a little bit remiss about painting restorative justice as as some kind of panacea. And um, just like I say in the book all the time, this is not a quick fix and it's not easy and it takes a lot of work to do, but it's worth doing. But I, I just don't think we can look at RJE anymore without also looking at race and racism. We can't look at RJE without looking at gun violence. We have to start connecting the dots of what's going on in our society. Um, 
and, and getting real with not only what needs to be done overall, but also just what RJ can do and what it can't do. Mm-hmm. We've got to start, you know, connecting these dots and mm-hmm. setting it in the context of this bigger picture. And if you're just joining us, uh, I just want to interject here. Um, we are in conversation with Dr. Martha Brown, who is the author of Creating Restorative Schools, Setting Schools Up to Succeed. Um, welcome. We have attendees from all over the world, and we hope that um, you're enjoying this conversation. In just a few minutes, we're going to be going into a Q&A session. You've, a lot of you have already sent in um, through text. Uh, great questions. So we've got quite the queue set up for you here, Martha. Um, and, you know, on the note that you were just sharing, though, uh, one of the things that I've heard more and more about, and of course, naturally, is the, the, the aspect of trauma and trauma-informed practices and unpacking the lineage of trauma in order to address um, the you know, the harms that are increasingly violent in our society and in schools. And I wonder what it has to do with RJE, restorative justice in education. I I think now that that there's so much research out there and there are people like Susan Craig and Carolyn Mears writing about this, that um, we can say it has everything to do with RJE. And I really want to thank um, Nancy Riesenberg and Joe Brummer particularly for opening my eyes to um, learning about and understanding trauma because um, it's a biological response in the body and it definitely has a huge impact on student behavior. And we, we just don't have time to go into all of it now, but um, anybody who that, that this is new to can go to Google and um, go to the CDC website and read about adverse childhood experiences, which is known as the ACEs study. That's the big study. And give yourself a crash course in Trauma 101. Um, you can also even take their, uh, take their test and get your own ACE score so that um, you, under, you understand your own experiences with trauma and your own triggers and, and how you react. And the reason why it's important is because restorative practices are also trauma-informed practices. So the best thing teachers can do is create calm, safe, caring classrooms because it helps students heal from trauma, and it decreases the odds that they'll be triggered and re-traumatized. So teachers practicing RJE and creating restorative classrooms can literally be an active part in a child's healing from trauma associated with, you know, domestic violence, racism, Poverty, illness, loss of a parent, you name it. And I work with one RJE trainer, um, Joe, who includes trauma in all of his trainings, and he just won't have it any other way. And I firmly stand in support of him for doing this and believe that every RJ trainer needs to get on board with integrating trauma as well as whiteness and implicit bias into um, a more comprehensive RJE trainings. And I think I think in our Q and A period we'll probably come back to that. I I know that Joe, um, we just want to say hello and thank you for joining us today and thank you for your great question. I can see it in in the queue, so just know that that um, we'll come back to that here shortly. Okay, and, good. Um, yeah, <laughs> and once again, once we go into Q and A, um, make sure if you want to text your question in that you have that there. 
Um, you, you'll see that box down below the slide screen, and you can find the um, place your question there, or you can raise your hand to ask a live question. So Martha, the word fidelity, I, I noticed when I was reading the book, um, and I hear it quite a lot now in the field of restorative justice in general, the word fidelity is used very frequently. And I would, I'd like to know exactly from you what fidelity to restorative justice and education means, and how do we make sure that we uphold that fidelity? Um. Usually fidelity is referred to in terms of program fidelity, and as much as I do not believe that restorative justice is a program, I, just for right now, I'm, I'm going to call it that just to help explain this. Um, fidelity or program fidelity is the, the extent to which a program adheres to the model once it's implemented. So it's literally looking at what happens when you have it on paper and what, what happens when you go into real life. And is the program having the the effects that you had planned for. So in this instance, let's say your school uh, makes a great plan to implement RJE and you're in your second year, but you've got six new teachers on your staff. If they aren't trained immediately in RJE, you now have six holes in your fidelity because you've got six people who are not with the program. Who knows? Maybe four of them are really punitive. Who knows? So um, they may, in fact, end up contradicting your RJE initiative, which, which weakens it. So I talk a lot about this in the book, which you all can read about that. But basically, if there's a lack of implementation fidelity, you're not only setting yourself up to fail, but you're giving credence to people who think RJE doesn't work. Because when it's not done right, when it's not planned and implemented well, why would you expect the outcomes to meet your expectations? So there are processes that you can use to monitor your implementation. Consultants like me specialize in monitoring and evaluation because we know that implementation fidelity has a direct bearing on program success and outcomes that are achieved. But you can also do this yourself by having frequent reflection circles, looking at the data constantly, using it in real, real time, asking each other how things are going, and when you find those holes, fill them as best as you can. So there's lots of ways to monitor implementation fidelity, but the important thing is that you do monitor it and you make adjustments along the way. Great. Thank you. Um, and like Martha said, there's so much more to, to it that can be um, found in creating restorative schools. Um, you outline it. Um, which chapter is that again? Or it's, You have a great table in the back to an index that refers to fidelity. So I could point to that as well. <laughs> right. And I think we start even in the introduction with a little um, right. introduction to implementation fidelity, but it, because it is the through line of the book that is um, people felt like it wasn't working for all students. We went back and we looked and mm -hmm. said, well, what's the it, right? You had to go back and redefine mm -hmm. the it before you can blame it for working or not. So Martha, finally, uh, let's talk a little bit about what the research says about RJE, and do you think that, that districts are doing enough evaluation? That's, that's a tough one, Molly. Um, first of all, there's, I found to be a dearth of uh, research, good research on 
um, restorative justice and education. There's a lot of good stuff coming out of the UK, but a lot of the more recent studies in the United States were like mine. They were case studies done by graduate students. So one of the things that we really need are some big studies where we can compare restorative schools to non-comparative schools. And, and we look at a number of them so we can start to really um, create some strong comparisons. I think um, a lot of school districts think they are evaluating RJE because they're already collecting discipline data. They've already got that at their fingertips. Um, my question is what are they doing with it and how are they looking at it? But I, I, I just don't think that's enough. Um, I think you have to do the qualitative work with it. You have to interview people. You have to get in those schools with observations and talk to people and um, find out what's going on. And I'm going to go right back to the beginning and, and look at those relational ecologies because that's not going to show up in your typical discipline data. And um, I'm really anxious to get to questions from folks. So the last thing I'm going to say is that if you are a district who is collecting data, um, please make that publicly available to folks. Um, Denver, Oakland, state of Minnesota are really, really good at publishing their evaluation reports. And as a result, we learn from them. And it's just, it's just really important that we share our results with each other and get better at creating a community of sharing because that's how this will grow and that's, we'll build on each other's work and we'll learn from each other's lessons. So if you're, if you're doing something in a district somewhere, please make it available to the rest of us. In general, in the field, um, we've been measuring and pre-surveying and post-surveying, and um, as far as it, 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 you know, relates to the broader work. Um, for RJE, I'm really excited about the opportunity to develop um, something similar, and we're I think we're in the works with that right now in the state of Colorado. So that's pretty exciting, and like you know, Martha just said. If you're a part of a district that ha has some updates to share, um, where where are those being gathered? Like, are pe where are people talking and updating district-wise, Martha? Do you know, do you have well, a, a, a repository? <laughs> that is the problem. There is there's no single repository now. We desperately need one. Um, mm -hmm. Typically, those of us who are who are well networked throw out an email that says, does anybody have anything that shows or, mm -hmm. or does anybody have the latest? And we share with each other. Um, so, you know, if school districts have a website about the restorative justice program, that's a great place to post a PDF of the evaluation report. So at least, you know, you could do an internet search that way and find it. Um, because I'm not just talking about full university IRB research studies. I'm just talking about internal evaluations that if they're made public, I think, um, First of all, it would give us all access to more data that we could look at broadly, but also it, it would help us all share those lessons, see what's happening and where, where it's happening and what's happening. So how about we go on into some interaction with people who are here today. Um, and also I would encourage people who are listening to this after the fact to reach out to Martha at the email that's posted on the slide, that's Martha at rjaeconsulting.com. 
Martha at rjaeconsulting.com. So she's encouraging of contact and um, of discussion around everything that we've brought today so far. And so a reminder, if you'd like to make your voice known in this room as we are, um, all you have to do is raise your hand and I'll know that you're waiting to ask a live question. In order to do that, you just simply press star 7, and that raises your hand and alerts me to open up your mic and welcome you in. And I also have some great questions lined up that perhaps we could start with here. And let's let's just go ahead and start with Joe, since we were talking about um, the work that Joe has done in trauma-informed um, restorative justice education. So. Joe, thank you so much for your time being here today. Thank you for all your work. And his question is, and that's Joe Brummer, by the way. Um, Martha, can you talk about resources? Can schools in lower economic areas still succeed at RJE? And what is the difference between schools with resources and those without oh. succeeding? <laughs> Just in a nutshell. <laughs> Yeah, thanks, Joe. <laughs> um, first, but I want to start by saying I mean, I'm not not to minimize the question, certainly. So you know, the 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 two schools that I studied that are that are in the book, one was extremely well resourced, and one was extremely under resourced. So that's a really good case study to look at what happens when you have a school with a um, PTA that raises money so that they can have three restorative justice coordinators <laughs> versus none or one. Um, and then you look at another school that is having trouble just getting teachers to go work there to fill those staff vacancies. So, um, I mean, Joe's absolutely right. Under-resourced schools, I think, will have more challenges. Um, I am going to go out on a limb because I, I'm dying to say this publicly. I really think districts can look at their school police budget and start finding out where they can reallocate. And I'm going to stand on the research again that shows that school police um, oftentimes have more of a negative impact than positive. And I know here our school police in, in my local district has a multi-million dollar budget. And um, so if you've got armed police officers, can you – transition out into unarmed school resource officers. You know, what what equipment do you really need? I, I am convinced that there's money there. Um, RJE takes resources, but it doesn't take tons of them. So I'm really convinced if, if you're willing to look and look in places where money's going that perhaps it shouldn't be, I think that ability to reallocate is probably there. All right. Thank you. It's a it's a really important question, no doubt, and um a big one. And I'm hearing you share that that you can also start where you are. Is that true? I mean, even yeah, in, even with limited resources. Molly, the more I think about this though is and the reason why I didn't mention apply for a grant is because too many times and I've been part of this here myself, um Schools are really willing to do restorative justice if somebody's coming in from the outside with a grant and it's not costing the districts a dime. And then when that grant ends, so does the initiative, and they move on to something else. And um, mm -hmm. 
Kristen Bremer's case study in Ontario shows uh, schools was a prime example of that happening. So I really do believe that um, schools and districts need to invest in this so that they commit to it. And I'm, I'm worried mm -hmm. that if they don't show up to the table with some money, that they also won't show up to the table with the commitment. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Martha. And um, I, like I said, there's some great questions here. Um, again, if you want to ask a live question, just raise your hand and we'll know that you would like to speak. Um, and we'll bring you into the room. So I, there's some great practical questions here. Let's go to a kind of a different tone of a question. Um, thank you, Jabali. I hope I'm pronouncing your, your name correctly, Jabali. Um, asks, how do you mitigate privacy issues when doing circle work with adults only? So that would be faculty, staff, and parents. I'm not, I'm not sure what, you, what you're asking. If this is about, you know, there's the rule that what happens in circle stays in circle, but I'm wondering if what you really want to know is um, what happens when faculty members get together and talk about students. Can you hear me? What, what, yes. I'm here. Thank you for everything you've offered so far. That was awesome. Um, <clears throat> I've been, we've been using Circle at our school for uh, three years now. I've been using it in middle school, upper school, and lower school, or K-12 school. Great. And I know that I need to get more adults in the process. But part of the issue is like the HR department freaks out because they're afraid that somehow Circle is going to compromise privacy levels um, in how adults relate to each other. So how do I make my HR department not freak out that Circle is going to somehow uh, step over boundaries um, that they see as being red flags? Does that make sense? I think so, and it's, it's hard to answer without really knowing details. I do know that HR departments are largely um, concerned with preventing litiga litigation, so that, that's where they're coming from. Um, I think off the cuff, I would recommend, one, that you get them into circles so that they experience it. But I think the other thing, then, is where issues might be di discussed that could be of concern, that that circle really needs to get back into developing some values right there with that circle with confidentiality being being one of them they're just you know, certain things have to be talked about and, and you otherwise they, they don't get addressed but the group again then just has to agree to a hold of those privacy values and, and respect that and confidentiality is is a huge part of it yeah that makes you know sense. just dis disclose well, disclose as little as you need to in order to to get to the issue right. definitely you know it doesn't get talked about outside that circle that's right perfect okay thank you so much you're welcome thank you so much i really appreciate how you knew how to unmute yourself too and just join in thank you so much for for being willing to do that um and, that was a really good you know, question flesh out really the good question. question yeah great question and would you be willing to share where you're calling in from today? I'm sorry, I missed I missed the last. Um, would you be willing to share what part of the world 
you're calling in from today? Uh, yeah, I'm in Seattle, Washington. Wonderful. Hello, Seattle. <laughs> Love Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thank you, Javali. My pleasure. Y'all take care. Okay. Thank you. So just uh, looking over all these great questions. Wow. There's another one um, that I think would be a great one to seg into, and it's from Chris um, in Albuquerque. And I'm just trying to find the right spot to start the question that he asks. Um, creating time in the school schedule to deal meaningfully with broken relationships, having parent community buy-in and support, and meaningful consequences seem to me to be part of what is missing. Um, do you have any suggestions about how we could develop our program further? I, I hope that's a correct interpretation, Chris. Um, and if you're here and you would like to flesh that out more together like we just did with Jabali, um, we certainly welcome you to the conversation. Yeah, because I, yeah, I don't think there's a blanket answer for this. Everybody's really got to look at the schedule. Um, you know, I, I had the, I've got to say the privilege of working in um, two middle schools, of doing my study in two middle schools, and advisory periods are pretty normal in a lot of middle schools. So that time was built for circle and for these kinds of discussions right into the school schedule. Problem is when you get into high schools, um, and I think it's easier to do that in elementary schools as well. High schools is really difficult because, um, you know, they're larger. There is no homeroom. It's just it's a whole lot more difficult to dedicate time to do that. I just think it has to be um, a priority. And if schools recognize that these relational experiences are important, they, they need to somehow find a way to carve out time. But I'm almost feeling that has to be done on an individual, almost school-by-school school level as they look at how they're run and what's going on, where mm -hmm. they could um, carve that time out of. And just to do honor to Chris, thank you, Martha, um, to do honor to Chris's question, again, Chris from Albuquerque, um, what they said here um, kind of in the backstory was that it appeared that there wasn't a restorative piece to the person who was harmed. And um, so that's that's a little bit of the backstory there that um, they are observing that in this elementary school, um, the program or the restorative justice um, piece of it was run by a teacher in her classroom over a recess time, and they created a system through which teachers refer students by filling out a form that goes to the principal, counselor, and at their discretion, the RJ teacher. The designated student would visit with the RJ teacher. The student was helped to clarify his or her role via social stories and sometimes apologized through letter writing or other strategies. And then Chris says, but to my knowledge, there wasn't really a component of what I understand as restorative to the person who was wronged. I so think that's, the that's story more of, Chris of the back story. I think that's more common than we'd like to admit it. Um, I certainly saw it too with a, with the, basically the restoration piece is cut out of the formula. So um, I think what Chris is showing us is, I don't like to use this word, but it's a very offender centric model of restorative justice where it's about the person who did the harm, but it's not a victim centered um, pro restorative process because the person who was harmed is basically left 
out. Um, and, and I did see this a lot. I'm going to go out on a limb with this. One of the with teachers not being adequately trained to do this work with their own students um, is that they bump it off to a restorative justice coordinator. And at that point, it really does start to look like a kinder, gentler way of getting um, sent to the principal. But then the kids go through some kind of dialogue or accountability process, but then put back into the classroom without that necessary reentry and resolution and reparation of harm. So we need to get better at this. We really do. Um, because the model of sending kids out to the RJ coordinator, whether it be through a form or whatever <laughs> that says process was, um, I don't think is really where we want to end up. It's where we are now, but we've got to get teachers more empowered and, and better trained to do this. Because if that harm happened in a teacher's classroom, that's where it should be resolved. With the person who was harmed, and if it happened in, during mm -hmm. a class, that entire classroom community um, is also involved, too. So that, that class needs to circle up about some things, depending on what it was. Mm -hmm. But, Chris, what, Great. This, is a, this, is, this is an mm -hmm. unusual. I do think we all need to really start thinking hard about how we're training and who's being trained and, mm -hmm. um, and, and how we can move this away from an offender-centered process to, to more victim-centered which is what RJ is supposed mm -hmm. to be fundamentally. Great. Thank you so much, Martha. Um, next question from Laura in Sarasota. Thank you, Laura. Um, she asks, I am wondering if this is something that can begin with preschool and kindergarten age students. Why not? <laughs> Why not? Um, a lot of kindergarten teachers um, have circle time with their students anyway. And so I think it's an easy mm -hmm. transition to um, use that circle time in a restorative community building time. You know, you, right now I'm involved in um, an evaluation program that, uh, of K through 2. And you, you do have issues of executive functioning, brain development, social emotional awareness. I mean, when kids are really young, they're, they're not fully developed in those areas. So to do the work with the real young ones, I think, is about developing those capacities, really working from that social emotional learning place, how to build relationships, um, interact with each other, increase awareness of self. Great. Thank you. I don't um, know why. I don't know why. Another, I don't know why it couldn't be done. I, I've had students in my RJ mm -hmm. classes that were kindergarten teachers that were doing it. So yeah, I don't know why it couldn't be done at all. Mm -hmm. So Nancy, thank you so much from East Lansing for your question. What an incredible question this is. Um, buckle down here, Martha. Are you ready? <laughs> it's a good one. Okay, I'll go sit. Um, I'll go sit. <laughs> so Nancy. From Michigan asks, what successful ideas or suggestions have you seen for honoring a staff that feels exploited after years of pay cuts and pay freezes, but workload increases? She says, we are trying to integrate restorative philosophy and practices, but encountering deep resentment in part around this issue. Since the budget doesn't allow for pay raises for everyone, 
I'd like to explore non-monetary benefits we could implement alongside restorative justice trainings and policy changes. My heart really goes out to um, the teachers there, and I think they have every right to, to feel that way. So, um, I mean, Nancy, I don't know what your involvement is with restorative justice, but it, to me it sounds like the staff needs time to spend together in circle. Forget about the students right now. Um, it, to to have dialogue and to do some healing. There's, I, I can't imagine how successful that that initiative would be when people are coming from such a place of hurt and anger. So um, I just I really think there's some healing work that has to be done with the staff first. Um, out of that then could come some more creative ideas and, you know, solutions could rise up organically on how to move forward. But I think those, Nancy Reeseberg really emphasizes this. Shauna Perry Finch in Atlanta really talks about that this work has to be done at that staff level first so that some of the issues um, and conflicts among and between the staff or just even how they're feeling get, get resolved so that they can go out there and then be a restorative support for the students. You know, and administrators need to be in on, on that dialogue, too. These are such great questions. Um, and, again, yeah, we have people just, from all over. Can I just add something, the... Molly? Sure, can please. Can I just add to that? Please. Um, you know, everything that Nancy said is contributes to high rates of teacher turnover, and it's really hard to develop a, um, a positive relational ecology when the staff is trained is turning over so much. Um, I just want to share with you, Nancy, that in my study of, of the teachers I surveyed, there were about 60 of them, 98% of them said they'd rather work in a restorative school. So if, they, if, if folks can get past that hurt stage and into the implementation stage, job satisfaction will be higher. And I think that's what you were asking. And in lieu of monetary rewards, what What's the perk of RJE? And, you know, theoretically, if it's done well, if, if you've got good training and good implementation, it should make the job a little bit easier and hopefully a lot more pleasant. So at least there's that. At least people feel like they want to go to work in the morning. What's well, she thank think? Thank you so much, Nancy. <laughs> What's she think, Molly? What's that? I mean, does it make yeah. sense? Yeah, for sure. And we hope, Nancy, that, that um, you know, if you feel inclined to share this webcast recording, please do so in your school community. Um, so I'd like to move on, um, if we could, Martha. We have about 12 minutes left in our time together and so many questions still coming in. Um, and this is this is a framework that is set and then a question based in it, which I think is a very powerful one from Andrew in Ontario. Um, Andrew, thank you for this comment and then really important question. And it starts, uh, I think it was Peter Singe who said that people don't resist change, they resist being changed. 
Regardless of one's particular stance on change theory, it is reasonable to assume that imposed change will elicit resistance and, in the case of restorative justice, may actually be counterproductive. I have found that when I approach the subject of RJE with educators, their first impulse is to think of it as something that is good for children, especially those in conflict. My inclination is to foster school-wide change by embedding RJE in staff operations, learning and relationships concurrently with graduated implementation of classroom-based uh -huh. restorative practices that encourage reflection by students and teachers. Of course, this integration also extends to relationships with the broader school community, including parents and caregivers. My question is this. In your experience, have you found a particular implementation strategy of, or sequence of steps of implementation that have proven to be more effective than others? No, Andrew, I, I haven't. I'll be really honest with you. Everything that you wrote to me sounds like um, you're absolutely on the right track. Um, in any change model and reform model, you've always kind of got those three tiers. You've got your enthusiasts who buy in right at the outset, and they're really your core team of implementation. Typically, and Peter Sange talks about this. He may use different words, but um, the fence sitters, those who are going to sit there and say, well, I'll jump in once I see that it's working. And then you have the core who are saying, I'm not, I'm not changing my ways. And I think you'll always have that. Um, I think leadership plays a role in this because at a certain point the principal or headmaster needs to look at their staff and see who's a good fit. So um, people who absolutely do not want anything to do with restorative justice over time may not be a good fit in that school anymore and there may be a better place for them to go. And um, these are tough decisions but they also go back to um, the kinds of people that principals hire. And I talk about this in my book. Can you look for people with that kind of natural alignment towards relations and relationships? And Because um, a lot of people come into teaching philosophically aligned with restorative values and processes, even if they don't know that yet. So other than that, I don't really know, you know, if there's one best way. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want, I mean, uh, if and, I may, acknowledge. Change, change, is, change is tough, and part of the problems in schools is that there always seems to be that next big thing. So there's also just change burnout that teachers are experiencing. Um, you know, it, it's it's complicated. It sounds like the you know the, that you guys are on the right track. The more people you can engage and certainly widen that ripple and invite community members and invite parents in so that teachers feel like they have outside support as well as internal. All of that stuff just strengthens everything you can do. Thank you, Martha. Uh, Robin, thank you for your comment. I'd, I'd just like to note this live here. Um, Robin shares that, that they began implementation in their school with no resources, just passion. This year, they have some dollars behind us and pilot implementation with the hope that sustainability is developed within each site and that that will spread, training the trainers. When we do multiple family circles, we sign agreements to assure confidentiality. So she was just responding to our um, Q&A conversation here. 
And I know there's a question also um, from someone else about training the trainers. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, Martha, would you like to speak to that? Well, I may I may get wildly unpopular if I speak my truth about this, but um, I'm not convinced that attending a one, two, or three-day workshop everybody in the position to then go back and teach everybody else effectively how to do it. Um, I, I think there needs to be some time involved to gain experience and to experience with things before one labels themselves a trainer. And um, this is this is a big topic in the restorative justice field, and it's one that there's a lot of debate and controversy about because the train-the-trainer model is definitely out there, and it's been out there for a long time. Um, the effectiveness of it, I don't think, has been researched, and that's something that I'd love to see some evaluation and research done on. Um, but it's also the reason why I am pushing, as is Kathy Evans and Dorothy Vandering, for RJE to be put into the curriculum of teacher and leader preparation programs because that way they'll um, have more time, more experience with it. They'll come out of their programs better equipped to work in a restorative school, and then over time there'll be less reliance on these, this workshop model or the train-the-trainer model. So that said, um, you know, we're, we are all building this plane as we fly it, and um, mm -hmm. I think it's good that we acknowledge that. There's, I don't know if there's right or wrong ways. So much as there are, there's lots of ways because this is this. It's a very organic grassroots movement. It's highly contextual. People are adapting to all kinds of situations, and everyone's doing the best they can with the resources they have. So, um, I, I just want to acknowledge mm -hmm. that that I think doing something is better than nothing. But sooner or later, we, as a movement, as a practice, we need to start developing some best practices and doing some research on our on how we're training people. And, and, and I, isn't the I, NACRJ I, I really doing some of that? I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure that we're there yet. And mm -hmm. that's why I just really want to give a big shout-out to Joe Brummer because, you know, Joe listened to me go on and on about this at a conference and – um, he took it upon himself and said, will you help me evaluate the effectiveness of my training? Because I don't know if what I'm doing is actually working. And that's, that's the exact question to ask is to start saying, how do we know that what we're doing with how we're training people is effective? And how can we make it better? Right. right. That's, that's something that I'd love to see us talk about more and take some action on and really, and really find out. Great. Thank you, Martha. But, but, I, uh, I don't mean to cut you off, but we still have quite a few really, really okay. good questions, and we have a very limited amount of time left here. Um, I would Molly, like to, is there a way to that you throw could, in. Can you, is there a way that you can send me unanswered questions and I could do a written response and put on oh, your website absolutely. or something? I'd be happy to do that. Yeah, absolutely. We will. We, any of these questions that we don't get to live here today, we will make sure that um, we reach out to you. And, um, you know, whether it's Martha emailing you, um, I know we have all your emails here, um, at least those of you that ask questions. So um, hopefully it's okay to reach out to you to have that discussion if we don't get, get to it right now. Um, I also yeah, and I wouldn't mind, I, I wouldn't mind putting, a, putting a document together of all the questions that went unasked and answered today and sending it out to everybody, or you can do that too. So 
happy to do that. Yeah, we will do that. We will definitely do that. And um, somebody has already asked about a transcript of this session as well. So we'll be looking into providing that as well. Um, and rem remember, you can also tune into this, pass it along um, with the link that you're using right now to view the slides, you will be able to come back for the three segments of recording. The first segment will be the presentation with the slide deck. The second piece is um, the Q&A between Martha and I. And the third is what we're doing right now interactively with you. So um, without further ado, though, let me just come back to Kathy from Maryland. And I think she asks a really important question. How do you think Oakland is able to avoid the large testing and blackout dates that preoccupy so many of our schools. Kathy, from what I know, um, the state of California, the state legislature has, has um, passed some legislation really changing how California does this assessment. I think they've rejected a lot of the uh, national models and that, tends, that trend towards testing. Um, because I, I saw that out there. I did not see teachers teaching to the test, and I saw teachers with a great deal of autonomy in their classrooms as far as how to teach their own students. So um, I, I wish I knew exactly <laughs> what happened to free them up, but I do know that they've, uh, they're the trailblazers in education as far as I'm concerned, and the state itself has pushed back on a lot of this testing obsession, and I think that's um, how they were able to create time and space for the restorative programs. We, we absolutely have to start engaging our legislators in these conversations because these are the kinds of things that are beyond the control of the school and oftentimes beyond the, school, the control of the district. Um, now, I think testing blackout periods are ridiculous. I'm going to be having conversations with school board members here about that. Um, but we, we have to get the policymakers involved in conversation so that we can do this work. Well, Martha, um, parting is such sweet sorrow. I'm so sorry that we have to close out here um, with our time. And I, I just wonder if you would like to make any closing comments. And like we said, we're going to get to your questions.